Well, I was looking at the clock, and uh, which I rarely do, you know that. Uh, but almost to the minute, 100 years ago, local time in France, on the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month, in 1918, the armistice was signed, which at that time ended hostilities in what we now know as World War I. From that, in 1954, this day has become what we know as Veterans Day. It's already been mentioned, and we do appreciate those who have served, but I was also thinking that uh, at that time, that war obviously was not known as World War I because nobody could predict that there would have been a World War II. At that time, it was known either as the Great War or the War to End All Wars. We know, of course, that that didn't happen. You know, Jesus told us that. He said there will always be wars and rumors of war. That's sad to us. But hatred and violence and wickedness and jealousy and greed have been a part of the human nature going all the way back to Cain and Abel. And so we will, I think, as long as our time here is on earth, have wars and the rumors of war. But for those of you that have served, we do appreciate very much your service to keep not just us safe here, but to try to provide peace all the way around the world. And we appreciate you very much. All right, Jansen. In, 19, in uh, July 8th, on July 8th, 1741, in Enfield, Connecticut... Jonathan Edwards preached one of the most famous sermons in American history. It was entitled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And you've heard me talk about this before. I remember reading this sermon in American Lit class in high school. And I tell you what, I don't and cannot or didn't. I went back and kind of read some of it this week, but... I couldn't remember really anything about the actual sermon itself. But I remember very vividly from 40 years ago, the illustration at the very beginning of that sermon in the lit book that I had. And if it was not this exact picture, it was something very similar. Because I remember sinners in the hands of an angry God. And I remember this big hand holding on to this little person. Dangling him over the flames of hell. And like I said, I don't know how much impression the sermon made on me. But the picture made a lot of impact on me. In this sermon, Edwards brought the reality of judgment and hell alive to his listeners and eventual readers as his sermon was published and went out all across the country. His purpose was to set a scene so horrifying that unbelievers would turn to God as an escape from God's wrath. And it was based on our passage this morning. We have seen throughout Hebrews the back and forth encouragement and warnings 
that our writer has given us. In business or anything else where you're trying to motivate people, there's this term called the carrot and the stick, right? The idea being that if you want to motivate people, you want to get them to do something, you can try the carrot. That's the sweet part. That's the encouragement part. That's the the positive encouragement. But that doesn't always work. And occasionally you have to move from the carrot to the stick. And we kind of get the idea of what the stick is. Maybe it's going to be a little more uh, not encouraging. Uh, Maybe a little more uh, discouraging or negative in the way that it tries to influence us. And we've seen this in the book of Hebrews is back and forth. We have spent several weeks in a very carrot-oriented passage where the writer encourages us to draw near to God. He encourages us not to give up. He encourages us to spur one another on. He encourages us us not to stop meeting together. And he encourages us to encourage each other. That's the carrot. Now comes the stick. Beginning in chapter 10 and verse 26. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sin is left. But only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the son of God underfoot? Who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him? And who has insulted the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Remember those earlier days after you'd received the light when you stood your ground in a great context, a contest in the face of suffering. Some of you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay, but my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. I wanted to read the whole thing, but go back to that first part. A little scary. A little threatening. A little intimidating. But I believe that was with a purpose. 
I believe our writer had a reason for showing us though that imagery of judgment to come. And so this morning I want us to take a closer look at what he's trying to say to us as well. First thing I want us to do is we must realize the audience to whom our writer is speaking. I believe it is a legitimate tool in evangelism, reaching out to the lost, to show the unbeliever the eternal consequences of sin and a life apart from God. When Paul was preaching to Felix, it said he preached to him about uh, righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, and it scared Felix. I don't know if Paul was a lot like Jonathan Edwards. I don't know if when Paul preached about the judgment to come that you could see the smoke, you could feel the heat, you could smell the burning sulfur. But whatever it was, Felix was scared. Now, unfortunately, Felix says to Paul, go away. Go away. I don't want to hear anymore. Paul reminds us that we were all once objects of God's wrath. You know, I was thinking about, as we go through the New Testament, this had never really occurred to me. But you know, we don't really have a lot of the sermons that the apostles and the early church and the early preachers preached to alien sinners. You know, all of our New Testament books, once we get past the book of Acts, were all written to those who were already Christians. And in the book of Acts, we have some of those sermons, but the first half are all of Peter's sermons talking to the Jews who already had a relationship with God, already understood about judgment and things like that. His message was mainly to prove to them that Jesus was the Messiah that the scriptures had pointed to. When Paul, yeah, when Paul goes and teaches the Philippian jailer, we don't know what he said to him. It's just that he preached to him. We do have Paul's sermon in Athens. You know, that may be one of the exceptions. But we really don't know what, whether it was the carrot or the stick or a combination that the early church used to reach out to the alien lost sinners to convince them that they needed to be brought to Christ. But I'm sure it had some to do with the judgment that was to come. Paul does tell us in Ephesians that we were once all objects of God's wrath. But that is not the message here. Far be it from me to argue with a wonderful Bible scholar who's been dead for 300 years. But Edwards missed the point with his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Because this passage is not talking about alien sinners. This passage is not talking about those who are lost out there in the world. This passage is not talking about those who have never heard or never knew anything about Jesus Christ. This passage is talking about us. This passage is talking about believers. This passage is talking about those who have already come to Christ at some point in time. Look at some of the terms that he uses. He talks about those who have received knowledge, those who have received the light. And then he makes the comparison 
to the old law in Israel. He says, if those who spurned God's law back then were held accountable and were put to death by two or three witnesses, well, you know what? That law applied only to the Israelites. That law didn't apply to the Gentiles. The Jews were not allowed to just go out and find some Gentile that wasn't under the law and execute them because they didn't believe in God's word. That law applied to the Israelites who were in a covenant relationship with God. Now, can we preach about judgment and all that to, to people out there in the world? Sure we can, but that's not what he's talking about here in Hebrews. He's not warning the people out there. He's warning the people in here. He's warning the members of that church to whom he was writing this letter. This warning, this vivid imagery of God's judgment and wrath is not for the lost. It is for those who receive salvation from God. It is for us today. So while Edwards was fine in using that to to try to reach the lost, that's not really the purpose of the writer here. So secondly, we want to look at beyond the audience, we want to look at the danger of the situation. What's going on here? The warning is about how we live our lives after we become a Christian. He uses that word deliberate sin. Beginning in verse 26, if we deliberately keep on sinning, After we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sin is left. David says in Psalm 19 and verse 13, keep your servant from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of any great transgression. And we all know, we've talked about it, Romans chapter 6 and verse 1, where Paul asked a rhetorical question, what should we say then? Shall we can go on sinning so that grace may increase? I was getting my NIV and my King James mixed up. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound, King James? God forbid. Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? By no means. No way. No way. And then he goes through the rest of that chapter, Romans chapter 6, explaining why we can't do that. We can't do that because we have become dead to sin in our lives. We become alive to Christ. While we may never become perfect, that ought to be our desire. Now, you understand we've talked about this, you know, we are made perfect through Christ. We're no more righteous or saved than we were the minute we, you know, rose up from the watery grave of baptism. But there is a sense in in which we ought to become more perfect each day. We ought to become more righteous. We ought to become more holy. And as we talked about when we were in Galatians 5... I don't even remember when that was. That may have been four or five years ago. But when we were back there talking about the fruit of the Spirit, we start off with the idea that we ought to be led by the Spirit. And when we are led by the Spirit, when the Spirit is living in us, when we are drawing near to God, we will, we should, day by day, become more perfect. 
become more holy, become more righteous, become more godlike in our lives. Now, we're not going to, we're probably not going to reach that moment of perfection. Now, I've proved to you before it's possible. Some of you don't believe me. But anyway, I proved it to you. We may not reach that, but that ought to be our goal. We should never have the attitude as Christians, ah, well, you know, God doesn't expect me to be perfect. Everybody sins, and so, you know, I can just go on, you know, kind of do whatever, because, you know, God's grace is going to cover, God's grace is going to cover me. That's the question Paul asked in Romans 6. God forbid, he says, by no means should you have that kind of attitude. How can we who are dead to sin continue to live in it? He says, we cannot continue to sin willfully and deliberately going on, doing the same things over and over again. In Paul, in in, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, you remember he said, don't be deceived. And then he lists his long list of wickedness and wicked people. He said, none of them are going to inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you've been washed You've been sanctified. You've been justified. Yeah, you were out there doing all these things. But now you've been washed, sanctified, and justified. You can't go on doing those things. You can't keep on doing those things. Jesus said, or John said, excuse me, if, you are, if we are walking in the light as he is in the light, the blood of Jesus continues to cleanse us. And we have fellowship with one another. You see, we may stumble, and God's grace covers that. The blood of Jesus covers that. But when we deliberately, intentionally, willfully, rebelliously decide, you know what? I don't care what God says. I'm going to do what I want to. The writer of Hebrews says, there's no sacrifice for that sin. There's nothing that can take that kind of sin away. When we willingly and deliberately disobey God. And continue in that. Can we deliberately disobey God and then repent sincerely and come back to him? Absolutely. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about just continuing on. With no regard. To the consequences of what's going on in our lives. He's not, under, he's not talking about the occasional inadvertent unmeditated sin. God's grace covers that. But sinning with no regard to who we are. And what God has done for us. That is what's being addressed here. When we do that. Did you hear how he described that? When we do that we are trampling on God's son. We are disrespecting the blood of Jesus Christ. And we are insulting the spirit. I don't know about you. I don't want to do any of those things. I don't want to do any of those things. So I'm going to live my life in such a way that I do not just deliberately and continually keep doing the same things that I did before I came to know Christ. And that brings us to our third point, the expectation. If we keep on sinning deliberately, 
What do you expect will happen? How many of us as parents have seen our children do something or start to do something? And we've warned them. We've told them over and over again what's going to happen. And they don't listen. And then they do it anyway. And you just want to go, what were you expecting? I told you that was going to happen. Paige, we've got this little uh, uh, end table. And it's got a glass top on top of it. And it's got a rock thing kind of down here. And then there's some things in there, you know. Anyway, she likes to climb up from the floor and get, get in that end table, that coffee table. But every time she does that, she then wants to stand up. Ah! You know, five minutes later, put it on the floor. Guess where she is? Right in there. Bunk. Ah! <laughs> and you think, what is wrong with you, child? How many times is it going to take? Now, I'm hoping if she doesn't bonk her head too many times, she'll eventually figure it out. And we laugh and we think, yeah, I had a little kid. Yeah. We do the same thing. We do the same thing. We, we think, oh, well, oh, oh. you know, what, what that definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. Well, the writer here in Hebrews is saying, listen, if you keep on sinning, if you go on deliberately doing what God has told you not to do, what do you think is going to happen to you? What are your expectations? He says, first of all, that there can be no sacrifice for sin. If you continue to deliberately go against God, how do you think your sins are going to be forgiven? What, what sacrifice is there? You've already trampled underfoot the the Son of God, the perfect sacrifice. You've made it as unholy, the blood. So what more do you want God to do? There's nothing left. There's nothing left. We are all subjects of God's judgment and wrath at one time. You read those parables in the New Testament. How many of those parables about judgment end with something like, and they will go to where there is weeping, and ganashing of teeth. I know the G is silent, but I just like to say it. I'm aware the G is silent. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. Eternal punishment. Remember the uh, unmerciful servant? Remember that one? When the, when the, when the master finally said the unmerciful, unmerciful servant, take him away, throw him away, and have him tortured. Not just thrown into prison. Tortured. Because he was unwilling to forgive his fellow servant. Notice again that Edwards had it a little wrong. The verse he's looking at and takes his title from does not say and talk about sinners being in the hands of an angry God. If you're looking at your Bibles or if you're listening, it talks about it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. 
Now, I'm not going to hassle with him too much because you go up a little above that in what we read and you can obviously see God's anger in all of this. You trample on my son, I'm going to get you. You ignore and treat with disrespect the blood that my son shed, I'm coming. Now you got time to fix it, but you better fix it. And he says, remember what he said about Israel? If God put to death those who did a minor thing in the old law, what do you think he's going to do to those who absolutely trample on his son? We were talking in the junior high and high school class. We were on, uh, no, and it was just the high school class. We were doing our dating class. And we we're talking about love. And so we were looking at 1 Corinthians 13, looking at those uh, characteristics of love found in 1 Corinthians 13. And so we were going through there and said, you know, love is kind, love is, you know, and it says love is not jealous. And I said to them, to the kids that were in there, I said, is jealousy wrong? Yes. Of course, it says right there, love is not jealous. So jealousy has to be wrong. Well, it was a trick question. Because the Bible tells us that God is a jealous God. Uh oh. Jealousy's wrong. God is jealous. A equals B, B equals C. See, it works for everything, okay? Uh, anyway, okay, that can't be right. So what's, what's he talking about here? And I had to remind them that 1 Corinthians 13 originally had nothing to do with marriage, it had to do with us within the church. And the kind of jealousy he's talking about there is, I can't be jealous of Chuck because of his talents. I can't be jealous of, you know, Eric because he can do this and I can't do that or whatever. That's the jealousy he's talking about here. Jealousy within a, a, a relationship is normal. It's natural. I told the kids, if you see Kenya down in Longview, Huddled up in some corner of a restaurant somewhere. Making googly eyes with some dude. (laughs) Holding hands. Smoochy facing. And you come back and you tell me and I go, eh. You're going to think there's something wrong with me, right? You see, that's the jealousy that God has. You are my people. You are supposed to live a certain way. And when you don't, it is if you are stomping on my son. It is if you are trampling underfoot my son, Jesus. We sing a song, the youth group sings a song, and it's called, Can He Still Feel the Nails Every Time I Fail? And I think about that. And again, we're talking about deliberate sin. And when we just say, I don't care what God says, I'm going to do what I want to do. And we just go on sinning. He feels the nails over and over again. We are trampling Jesus under our feet. The Father will not, 
idly stand by while those who profess to be Christians continue as if Jesus had never lived or died. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Ooh. You ready for some carrot? We've had a little bit, little bit of stick. But the end of that passage brings us the encouragement, Jansen. Our writer pulls out the carrot again and reminds his readers of their past. Of their great past. He says, don't you remember what it was like when you first started to believe? Don't you remember what, what it was like when you stirred firm in the face of persecution? Don't you remember what it was like when they came and they took away your business and they took away your house and they took away all your possessions and you were strong and you stood there and you said, I don't care because what I got in heaven is better than whatever you're taking away from me. Don't you remember that? Why would you give up now? Why why would you give up now? Why would you go back to the old life? Don't do that, he tells them over and over again. He reminds them that what has been promised to us is greater by far than anything we forfeit in life. And I love the way he does this. He starts off, there's no sacrifice for sin. If you deliberately, you know, if you deliberately sin, you're trampling Jesus under your feet, you're disregarding his blood, you're embarrassing or ignoring the the spirit. Uh, you know, the, the, the flames are coming out here and all. It's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. And then he ends up living God. See? Yeah. Hands of a living God. The last verse. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. Do we need the stick? From time to time, we do. I don't think we ought to water down, no pun intended, (laughs) what judgment is going to be like. We need to understand that after all God has done for us, after giving his son to die for us, that when judgment comes, His wrath is going to be intense on those who ignore that or rebel against that. It's there. It is there. Now, here's the key. If you're today are deliberately sinning, if you today are deliberately living Contrary to God's word, smell the smoke, feel the heat, because our writer is telling you, you're in danger. You are in danger. If you're not there, then be grateful for what God has done for us. You see, I don't know what the artist meant by that picture. It's one of those things where you read the title 
sinners in the hands of an angry God. And then you look at the picture. And I got the idea of God dangling us over the fires of hell, waiting at any minute to drop us in. I look at that now. And I think about sinners in the hands of a living God. And why could that picture not just as easily represent God reaching down and pulling us up from the fires of hell? The carrot and the stick. If there's some way we can help or encourage you this morning, we invite you to come now as we stand and as we sing. We hope by listening to this lesson, you have found a better understanding of the Bible. And through that better understanding, find a closer relationship with God and His Son, Jesus Christ, our living Savior. If you have any questions or desire more information, please feel free to contact us here at the Dangerfield, Texas Church of Christ. You can find us at dfield.org. That's D-F-I-E-L-D. C-O-C dot O-R-G. Or you can email at dfieldcoc779 at aol dot com. Or you can call us at 903-645-2896. If you are local to the Dangerfield area, we would love an opportunity to meet you and encourage you in person at 818 818- West W.M. Watson Boulevard, Dangerfield, Texas, 75638. Her meeting times are Sunday mornings at 9.30 a.m. for Bible class and 10.30 a.m. for worship service, Sunday evening at 6 p.m. for worship service, and Wednesday evening at 6.30 p.m. for our midweek Bible class. Grace and peace be with you always.